0: Today I'm going to cover The Seven-Story Mountain by Thomas Merton, an autobiography of faith. This is book 15 for my 2022 reading list. Well, the title of this one, The Seven-Story Mountain, uh, what's that all about? What what does it mean? And and what's interesting is uh, is that Merton doesn't really get into what it means, but he does talk about Dante, and uh, he talks about reading Dante's Inferno, and in in their... uh, I've, I've not read it, but from what I gather, there are seven levels of hell uh, written about in, in there. And so this is, is kind of allusion to uh, a seven-story seven mountain. So, so there's a climb uh, inferred in this one. And it gets into, I guess, what my expectations were for this book and, and how it differed from those. And, and what my expectations were going in were that uh, all I knew of Merton was that he was a monk. And so I was expecting the, well, the tagline is an autobiography of faith. So I was, I was expecting a book that, that talked about his life in the monastery, uh, uh, life as a monk and, and his, his, faith journey that that led him there and and it, and it was that to some degree but a lot of it was his life prior to being in the monastery and that life was not a religious life it was, it was far from it in in many respects and uh, that that's almost half of the book is where he's describing what that was like uh, in, in in his life prior to to joining the monastery and so in segment two of this episode I'll get into uh, the story of his his life and, and different parts of it but uh it does tie into the to the um, title of the book because the the first what uh merton calls the first 25 years of his life were were kind of going down they, they were going down into this purgatory or this the seven levels of hell and and uh, he he describes in, in great detail uh, what that entailed um, but then there there was a there was a shift in his life and, and he started moving in a different direction and and if you're thinking of a mountain and, and kind of moving moving up uh, that that's just kind of the the visual I get uh, with with the title of this book um, it was a very unique book in the sense that you're, and it's just straight up uh, autobiography, especially the first half, where where it's about his life, and there's mundane things, and there's exciting things, and uh, but but what really stuck out in in this book and, and made it unique is that there would just be paragraphs amidst this kind of normal uh, descriptions of life. There would be paragraphs that were just so amazing and stunning, and and the writing was just beautiful, and. Y- y- you think, you know, how did he fit that in to just one paragraph, what, what he just said there? And so it, a, a, lot, a lot of these might be like a, a spiritual illusion or, or something like that. But it was just really interesting. And it happened multiple times where you're just kind of reading along, hum-dum, hum-dum. And then all of a sudden, just bam, you're, you're hit with this paragraph. And that uh, made the book quite quite special. Uh, Joel Tomlin, the owner of Landmark Booksellers, suggested this to me. He is a huge fan of Thomas Merton, and so he, uh, he's he been talking about this one for a while. And so I bought it at Landmark and um, and wanted to add it to one of my reading lists. It was originally published in October of 1948. So uh, this is right after World War II, and, and World War II plays a part in, um, in Merton's story as well reading stats uh, this book took me 13 hours and 16 minutes and 18 seconds to read through that was over 11 days uh, that averaged 42 pages per day as this is a 462 page book I just I like to highlight that just so you know how long it might take you to read the book and uh, I get a kick out of out of tracking tracking those things. So for the rest of this episode, uh, next segment, I'll get into an overview of Merton's life. So, uh, if you're unfamiliar with Merton, this might just be kind of a, a quick overview of, of what his life looked like. And then I want to share a few quotes that really stuck out to me in this book. In segment three, I'm going to pull the one thing, the, my one key takeaway, the thing that stuck out to me the most in, in this book. And I want to close out with reading, uh, the, the opening part of one of the chapters that was just stunning, and uh, so it, you can skip that because it'll be a kind of a long passage. Uh, but but for those of you who are interested, I, I'm going to read a of uh, a, a few paragraph section at the very end of this episode. Well, if this episode strikes an interest in you and wanting to read this book, I will have a link in the show notes to where you can purchase this right from Landmark Booksellers. I am the business manager there, and I mentioned at the beginning of this episode that uh, Joel Tomlin, the owner owner there, uh, suggested this book. So I'll have it up on the website, and uh, if you use the coupon code BOOKS OF TITANS altogether, you'll get 10% off of this book. That really is the best way that you can support this podcast. So going into segment two here... An overview of Merton's life. So uh, starting off in at the very beginning of the book, uh, he makes this statement, if what most people take for granted were really true, if all you needed to be happy was to grab everything and see everything and investigate every experience and then talk about it, I should have been a very happy person, a spiritual millionaire from the cradle even until now, end quote. Thing is, he was not a very happy person in his early life. Uh, he was born in Europe. Uh, his father was from New Zealand, and his mother was American. And they had met and settled in France. Uh, his, his mother died at a pretty early age from stomach cancer uh, when when Merton was, was young. And his father was a traveling artist. So Merton grew up in France. Uh, he attended... University at Oxford. And just for one year, though, that was not for, for him. And uh, he moved on to the United States and, and started going to Columbia in New York. Uh, Merton lived a wild life while he was at Columbia and, and, and at, at Oxford uh, as, as well. Um, and when he was at Columbia in, in, in New York, he'd stay out quite late, uh, a lot of drinking, a lot of uh, women and just jazz bars and going to different places staying up all hours of the night around Manhattan. And as this was in autobiography of faith, we we get different glimpses of things that pull at Merton throughout his life and these things are drawing him to faith. And so even in his worst circumstances, even at his lowest points, there's there's just these little glimpses of of heaven that 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 come out and and, and reach at him, and what's neat is just such a variety of things that that reach out to him, uh, in the span of his life. And so some of those things are are these uh, cathedrals. He uh, when he's traveling, he he loves to just go into cathedrals and, and sit in them, and and sometimes they they speak to him. Uh, art. He has this incredible teacher of literature at Columbia. That's that's another thing that that really reaches out to him in the in the sense of faith. The uh, the author William Blake, the the poet. Um, another thing that reached out to him was uh, he he became Merton became a communist for for a while, and uh, he said it's it just kind of more following the trends type thing. But uh, there was a disenchantment that came with that pursuit of communism. And that was just another thing that kind of guided him towards, uh, towards eventual faith. And of, of all things, the, the thing that, that is, is the funniest is that James Joyce, the author, w- also played a role in, in this, uh, this roundabout way to, to faith. And uh, if, if you read this book, it's, it's kind of an interesting way how James Joyce played a role in that. Uh, but here's a quote from page one ninety five: Books and ideas and poems and stories, pictures and music, buildings, cities, places, philosophies were to be the materials on which grace would work. End quote. I just, I just love that, and, and, and it's neat to to read the autobiography of a life and to see these different points uh, in his life kind of pull him towards a, a certain direction. Well, he he does have a, a gradual conversion. Uh, with with all of these ways kind of culminating uh, to to a, a final conversion, um, and and then uh, towards the end of the book he becomes a Trappist monk at a monastery in Kentucky in in the United States. So that, that's a, a, a brief uh, overview of his, his life, um, and, and he wrote this just a few years after entering the monastery, so this was, was at a pretty early point in his life when he'd, he'd uh, joined the monastery. He's written quite a, a number of other books uh, other than this one, but this, this is uh, probably his more, more famous one. So now I wanted to highlight a few quotes that, uh, that stuck out to me in the book. And and I'll highlight five here. So the first one is on suffering. And he says this on page 91. Indeed, the truth that many people never understand until it is too late, is that the more you try to avoid suffering, the more you suffer, because smaller and more insignificant things begin to torture you in proportion to your fear of being hurt, end quote. Next quote is about uh, one of his professors at Columbia and this is uh, in, uh, where I went through the overview of his life this is the the, the professor of, of literature that that, um, that had a profound impact on Merton's life and there are a lot of different sections of the book about this professor Van Do- Doreen uh, or Van Doren uh, but, I, but I want to read one one part that um, that that really stuck out. This is on page one hundred fifty four. I thought to myself, who is this excellent man Van Doren, who being employed to teach literature, teaches just that? Talks about writing and about books and poems and plays, does not get off on a tangent about the biographies of the poets or novelists, does not read into their poems a lot of subjective messages which were never there. Who is this man who does not have a fake and cover up a big gulf of ignorance by teaching a lot of opinions and conjectures and useless facts that belong to some other subject? Who is this who really loves what he has to teach and does not secretly detest all literature and abhor poetry while pretending to be a professor of it? End quote. A few paragraphs down. This is so beautiful. I, I, I have to include this in, in this part as well. Mark, uh, the, the teacher, Mark would come into the room and without any fuss would start talking about whatever was to be talked about. Most of the time he asked questions. His questions were very good, and if you tried to answer them intelligently, you found yourself saying excellent things that you did not know you knew and that you had not, in fact, known before. He had adduced them from you by his questions. His classes were literally education. They brought things out of you. They made your mind produce its own explicit ideas, end quote. I just, I love that. Um, I think we've, uh, hopefully we've all had teachers... Who had been like that? Uh, the ones that stick out, and and I also love just this contrast to to. Well, I I had a friend who who studied literature at the undergraduate, graduate, and then started a Ph.D. program, and I would ask him if he had read certain books, like you know, oh, if you well, if you if you went that far into literature, you must have read Moby Dick. What'd you think of Moby Dick? He's like, well, I never read it. Uh, I read I read books about Moby Dick, but I never read Moby Dick, and he became so disenchanted with the whole thing that that my friend he quit uh his program uh, mid phd and it was because of that he was reading all the books kind of about uh the literature instead of reading the literature itself and oh to have a a professor like this that loves the literature and isn't trying to do different things with it or isn't trying to sideswipe the literature by by uh by reading other books about it, but, but is going to the, the actual literature, uh, this had such a tremendous impact on Merton's life and, and led to the, to the, to the man who, who wrote this book, uh, and, and a big part of that was, was this professor who had just a, a deep, deep love of literature. Next up on page 197, I want to read, us uh, or yeah, read something else here that, um, that, uh, Merton was saying, uh, this kind of ties into his, his, uh, overview of of his life that I presented where all these different things were, were coming together in his life. The material of literature and especially of drama is chiefly human acts, that is free acts. Moral acts. And as a matter of fact, literature, drama, poetry make certain statements about these acts that can be made in no other way. That is precisely why you will miss all the deepest meanings of Shakespeare, Dante, and the rest if you reduce their vital and creative statements about life and men to the dry, matter of fact terms of history or ethics or some other science. They belong to a different order. End quote. <laughs> I love that. They belong to a different order next up page 307 and this was just beautiful they're on a bus they're looking out the window and he makes this statement just this simple quick statement for all things in heaven were just a little out of reach for all things in heaven were just a little out of reach and that just ties in so well with his his story of all these things kind of coming into his life and and, and showing him there was something more showing him there was something outside of, of, of his experience or, or outside of himself. And these things were to have a tremendous impact on his life. And I just love the succinctness of this quote, for all things in heaven were just a little out of reach. Last up, I'm going to read a section from page 454. So this is towards the end, and this is about contemplation. So here we go. First comes the act of life which is practice of the virtues, mortification, and charity, which prepares us for contemplation. Contemplation means rest, suspension of activity, withdrawal into the mysterious interior solitude in which the soul is absorbed in the immense and fruitful silence of God and learns something of the secret of of his perfections, less by seeing them by fruit, fruit of love, end quote. So uh, a big part of the the second part of Merton's life is this moving to a life of contemplation, and so he he makes the distinction there. Uh, there there are two kind of lives. There's the active life in us, and then there's the contemplative life. And so what does that mean? And and I just loved how he he described it there. So now uh, I'm gonna go in. Next segment will be my main takeaway, the key thing that stuck out to me after reading this book. Well, Merton kept making a statement in this book, and the first time he said it, I just kind of brushed it off, but he he kept saying it, and I'm going to read every instance of of where he talked about this, but uh, this is the thing that has stuck out to me the most, and the thing that uh, I just can't get out of my head. So it, it has become my, my one thing from, from this book. And it's this. I, I mentioned before that his life coincided with uh, World War II. Uh, he, he did not go to fight. His brother did. Um, his, his brother, John Paul, uh, died, in, uh, was killed in World War II. And Merton kept saying, kept making the statement that he was responsible for World War II. Uh, Thomas Merton was responsible for World War II. And yes, there were other people responsible, but but he kept saying that he was responsible. And I'm thinking, well, n- no. I mean, uh, Hitler was, and there were a lot, of, a lot of other people I would put before you being responsible for World War II, but he really believed that he was. and And he believed that by... His lifestyle and the way that he had lived the first half of his life. And it was just a startling thing to read and, um, and to think about. Uh, are, are we as individuals responsible for these big things happening in the world? And I, I would guess that we all hope not and uh, don't, maybe perhaps don't think we are, but um, to hear somebody say that I am responsible. For World War II is is quite a shock, and it reminds me of uh, I, the story of of Chesterton when when a newspaper asked asked him to comment on what is wrong with the world. And I, uh, the story goes that he replied with "I am." So what's wrong with the world? I am. And sa- same type of thing here. But but I want to read these four different sections or quote. Or, they're they're actually just uh, sentences. Um, so they're pretty short, but where Thomas Merton says this. So the first one's on page 141. He says, did I know that my own sins were enough to have destroyed the whole of England and Germany? There has never yet been a bomb invented that is half so powerful as one mortal sin, end quote. Next up on page 272, I myself am responsible for this. My sins have done this. Hitler is not the only one who has started this war. I have my share in it too, end quote. Page 328, it would be the wages of my own 25 years. This war was what I had earned for myself and the world. I could hardly complain that I was being drawn into it, end quote. And the final one, this is uh, about his brother, John Paul, for, uh, on page 442, John Paul had at last come face to face with the world that he and I had helped to make, end quote. Yet, on the flip side, there, there's, there's another way to view this. And this came, comes on page 421, where Merton says this, Who knows how many souls are depending on your perseverance in this monastery? End quote. And this is this is someone in the monastery, if I recall correctly, that that asked him this. And and this one comes up a couple times as well in this book. And so yes, there there's this uh, Merton's putting this responsibility on himself for for playing a part, for having a share in starting this war. But there's also this responsibility now, kind of on the second half of his life, of of people whose souls dependent upon his perseverance, his prayers, his life, his habits, his daily habits going forward in life. That's just a startling thing as well. Uh, perhaps uh, uh, something hard for, at least for me, to, to make that connection of how, how would me as an individual ca- cause a huge war like that? But also how would uh, one individual have the impact and, and the prayers of one individual have the impact on, on souls outside of a monastery outside of, of where Merton would have ever had any contact with these people. And just a neat uh, neat way to think about it and something that Merton brought up multiple times in this book, uh, both, both sides of that coin. Uh, another thing about this book that that stuck out was uh just the connection with with Andrew Peterson's book God of the Garden. I read that last year. And as I was reading Merton's book, I'm thinking, man, this this sounds familiar. This uh this this monastery in in Kentucky and in a- Andrew Peterson's book, he had described a trip where he went to that exact monastery and even had a, an experience similar t- to what Merton says in in entering that, that monastery for the first time. So that, that was a cool connection just with two dif- two different books that I've read for, for this project. So I'm going to, I'm going to close up this episode uh, by reading a section towards, towards the end of this book. Uh, and I just thought this was an incredible start to, to this paragraph. This was um, uh, chapter four out of the final section and it's called the sweet saver of Liberty. So here we go. I'm going to read about uh, four paragraphs here. The monastery is a school, a school in which we learn from God how to be happy. Our happiness consists in sharing the happiness of God, the perfection of his unlimited freedom, the perfection of his love. What has to be healed in us is our true nature, made in the likeness of God. What we have to learn is love. The healing and the learning are the same thing. For at the very core of our essence, we are constituted in God's likeness by our freedom. And the exercise of that freedom is nothing else but the exercise of disinterested love, the love of God for his own sake, because he is God. The beginning of love is truth. And before he will give us his love, God must cleanse our souls of the lies that are in them. And the most effective way of detaching us from ourselves is to make us detest ourselves as we have made ourselves by sin, in order that we may love him reflected in our souls as he has remade them by his love. That is the meaning of the contemplative life in the sense of all the apparently meaningless little rules and observances and fasts and obediences and penances and humiliations and labors that go to make up the routine of existence in a contemplative monastery. They all serve to remind us of of what we are and who God is, that we may get sick of the sight of ourselves and turn to him. And in the end, we will find him in ourselves, in our own purified natures, which have become the mirror of his tremendous goodness and of his endless love. End quote. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I would love to hear from you, uh, especially if you've read any Merton. uh, And if you've read this book, and and if you got something out of it, or just want to share some thoughts that you have about Merton, I would love to learn more about Merton. I I hope to read more of, of his work at another point in my life. If you would would like to contact me, you can do so at Eric at booksoftitans.com. I spend my, I spell my name with a K, so that's E-R-I-K at booksoftitans.com. You can also follow Books of Books of Titans on Instagram or Twitter. Uh, It's just at Books of Titans. And uh, the website, I spend a lot of time on that, and it is stocked full of resources to help you find the best books and to create your own reading list. I'll be back in a couple weeks to discuss another book from, uh, from my 2022 reading list. Until then, keep learning, keep listening, and keep reading. I'm out.